I had the whole story in my head. It was like graduate high school, win NCAAs, sign a pro contract, make the Olympics. In a very weird way, a lot of that has actually come true. Again, just not at all in the path I would have expected. That was Ben Flanagan, and this is episode 95 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Ben Flanagan is a 27-year-old Canadian track and road runner who's been setting records and winning races seemingly every time he toes a start line lately. He grew up in Kitchener, Ontario, with big dreams of becoming a hockey player. But when his growth spurt never materialized, he switched focus to running and has never looked back. Always drawn to the NCAA, he decided to attend the University of Michigan and serendipitously wound up being coached by Canadian middle distance legend Kevin Sullivan, who he credits with developing him into the athlete and competitor he is today. Ben capped off his university years in 2018 with an NCAA title in the 10,000 meters in a race that, on paper, he wasn't a favorite to win. This put him on the map and he's had pro contracts ever since, first with the Reebok Boston Track Club and more recently with On Running. In the past year alone, Ben has won the prestigious and historic Falmouth and Manchester road races, became the Canadian 10K champion twice, ran a half marathon PB of 61.38 in Houston, and set a new Canadian 10K record on the roads of Boston in a time of 28.11, six seconds faster than the previous record, which had stood for 35 years. But it hasn't been all rainbows and sunshine for Ben. Five months prior to winning NCAAs in 2018, when he was on the verge of a breakthrough, he was so plagued with injuries that he thought about hanging it all up. We talk about several serious and important topics such as stress fractures, underfueling, and red S, as well as why bringing his competitive mindset to cross training may have backfired on him. Although Ben is at the very top of his sport, he's as down to earth and funny as can be. He recently proposed to his girlfriend, Hannah, and you'll have to keep listening for the incredible story about how the two of them first met. So without further delay, please enjoy this jam-packed episode with Ben Flanagan. Okay, well, we are here with Ben Flanagan, one of Canada's best track and road runners. Welcome to the show, Ben. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm stoked to be here. So thanks for having me. Yeah, well, you and I met very, very briefly about six weeks ago at the Canadian 10K Championships in Ottawa. Uh, we just happened to be staying in the same hotel, and uh, my friend Jen and I were riding the elevator. So we hit the elevator. I think we're staying on floor 11, going down to the lobby, going out for the afternoon. The elevator opens up to you and Rory Linkletter and your fiance, Hannah, and your cute little dog. And immediately I recognized you and Rory and said, oh, I guess we're in the elite elevator. <laughs> and then <laughs> later that evening, you and Rory went number one and two in the 10K. So my friend Jen and I were very proud of our ourselves thinking that we had been your good luck charm so uh, uh all evidence points in that direction so yeah. I think you're right. <laughs> so I knew then that we had to uh, have you on the show and I kind of envisioned us spending a good chunk of time talking about that race in Ottawa but since then you've been on just an absolute tear doing all kinds of track and road racing and so uh we'll try to hit on all of it if we have time but we may just have to have you back so uh <laughs> Anyhow, congratulations on defending your 10K Canadian Championships title in Ottawa this year. Yeah, thanks. Um, that was an awesome race, and it was kind of at a time of year where I wasn't really sure what to expect out of the body. So to come away with a win was awesome. Uh, I hung out with Rory actually that whole weekend, so um, him and I got a lot closer, which was cool too. And yeah, it was it was sick. It was such a great race between like between Thomas Afar, Luke Brochet, and Rory and I. Pretty like intimate for lack of a better term for like Canadian distance running. So I, I love that style of racing. Roads are awesome. And yes, you're right. I've been very busy the last few weeks, but um yeah, happy to talk about it all. Oh yeah. Well you went 2840 in the 10K. 2840. And uh what I noticed, so I was standing right at the finish line, but they had a TV like we could see the whole race unfolding. But by the time that you came by me, you were just absolutely flying and your splits in that race were 1426 for the first 5k and 1414 for the second 5k so 
OMG, like <laughs> where does that kick come from? Talk to us about your kick. Is it something you've always had or something you've had to work on? Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. It's actually something I like always lacked to be honest for, for most of my career. Um, so yeah, I feel like early on, I was kind of always known as like the, the distance guy. Um, usually the guy that would take the lead with two laps to go because I was scared of getting like out kicked by everybody. And, uh, that was an excellent strategy to lose. I lost uh, races all the time. I was the guy to kind of, you know, try to break everyone and it's such a hard way to run. And usually if you break everyone, it's great. But if you don't, and someone's there and you took the lead for that long, odds are they feel better than you when, when you hit the bell. So it's totally something that I learned like very late in college, in college, same thing. I was almost like too gritty, I think is kind of a weird way to put it, but it's like, I almost wanted to win or, you know, take the lead too early. I almost got too excited. And Kevin Sullivan, my coach at Michigan really challenged me to, to stay more patient and, you know, trust my fitness and, you know, with obviously tweaking some, some speed work as well and building that confidence in like my last lap or last K kick, I finally felt ready to go. And I mean, honestly, it wasn't until probably my last season of college where I started winning races with that strategy of sitting longer. And then, you know, basically when I was going to go really go the, the quote I actually love from Sully and use to this day is he told me when he was in college, and a pro, he uh, he never took the lead until he knew he was going to win. Uh, he said sometimes I was halfway through the race, sometimes it was in the last thirty meters. But um, basically, the way I understand that is, it's just not worth wasting energy going to the front just to go to the front. So I'm a lot more intentional with that move. And uh, yeah, once I got some validation from it from actually winning races, it's become just a hundred percent my my go to strategy now. So. At Ottawa, I went a lot earlier than I really would have liked to. Um, I, I made a move at about 7K. So our last 3K was quite a grind, but fortunately I was gonna I was able to get enough distance to, you know, run away with it. Yeah, okay, cool. And you were you were talking about Kevin Sullivan there. So I, I was gonna go there in the podcast eventually, but he was uh, somebody that had a big influence on you at your time at uh, the University of Michigan. And he is, for context, one of the best 1500 meter mile runners that Canada has ever produced. Um, Three-time Olympian, fifth in, was it the Sydney Olympics in the 1500? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I know he's for the Olympics. I'm not sure which one it was. Mm -hmm. So that's some great advice from him. Don't take the lead until you know you're going to win. <laughs> uh, and something that clearly you've been executing on in the last, you know, four years at least, but maybe even before that. So what other uh, role do you think he played in your success so far? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty funny because like the way the story looks is that like I went to Michigan to run under Sully, which I 100% would have done. But the ironic thing is I actually went to Michigan under a different coach um, who was named Alex Gibby, you know, coaches at Harvard. And he left after my first first year, which was a terrible experience for any athlete to, you know, have a coach leave that you basically went to train with. And by total coincidence, Sully ended up getting the job as, as a Michigan alum himself. So it's funny, like I had art projects back in my hometown in Kitchener with like Kevin Sullivan on them, like a cutout of him. And he just like very organically, coincidentally becomes my college coach. So I was like completely starstruck in college and really anything he told me I was going to take for gold just because of how much I looked up to him. Um, being in from Ontario, uh, every single record board I looked up, like looked at and every single race I ran, Kevin Sullivan had the record. So he's a name that I learned very, very early in my, my um, career. So yeah, I mean, honestly, there's so much I learned from him. Um, him and I became like really close friends just because, you know, I was a sophomore by the time he got there and I was one of his, you know, first classes that he really like took over and, you know, because he didn't come from another head coaching position. So I think it was pretty meaningful for him to have four years with, with me and my other recruiting class and in the class below us as well. But uh, I, to this day, I still, you know, reach out to him. Uh, we, you know, I get a beer with him when I'm in town. Well, now I live here. So when, when he's free, he's a busy guy now. But uh, in terms of other things I've learned, like I can't really think of too many specifics, but I feel like I just learned how to be like an elite competitor under him. You know, he just had so much success at the elite level and accomplished so much that going into championship races where I felt totally like I didn't belong or inexperienced, 
in those situations where I had like him in my corner and him believing in me really allowed me to, you know, get the most out of myself at these high caliber events where, and when maybe I otherwise wouldn't have had, had the confidence to do so. It's like, if Kevin Sullivan believes in you, it's like, you got what it takes. So um, I would say that's probably the biggest impact he made, especially in my last year of college. So maybe did that come into play in your uh, NCAA uh, 10,000 meter win in 2018 when you were a senior and you took that NCAA title? Like, I mean, you were against some amazing competition in that race and you just, you know, came out of nowhere with that kick at the end and won and you were not a favorite necessarily, right, to win. So did Kevin believe in you for that race and, and talk to us about how that all played out? Yeah, basically, I mean, everything I just described basically is is from that event specifically without without saying it um so and honestly it's like you know I think of the impact Sully's made on my career that's exactly where my head goes like to me I think if I'm in that situation with anybody else I, I don't have the same end result and that's how significant you know just our communication and game plan and strategy were going into that event because you're absolutely right I was ranked 23 23rd out of 24 athletes in the field so to actually feel like I was capable of making an impact or, or even winning, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it was a long shot. So, yeah, I, I mean, I have a very like specific memory of Sully and I hanging out in his car after, you know, we just either came back from a run or something or getting some coffee. And it was like kind of that time to address the elephant in the room, which was like, hey, like, what do we think we can do tomorrow in this race? And it was the first time I kind of like admitted to anyone that I, I thought I was capable of winning just based on how workouts were going and, you know, where – I was at and um it was it was pretty nerve-wracking because like it was a moment of vulnerability where I thought he easily could have like shot me down and been like well you know maybe we go for like top eight and um fortunately he's like yeah I 100% agree with you like if you make the right decisions in the race you can 100% be in contention to win and I feel like that's kind of like what tipped the scale to being like oh Mm -hmm. shit like maybe we really have a shot here and that's something that I just carried into the race. And, you know, obviously the, the story goes, I ended up winning it. But that, that was something that, like a conversation I think needed to happen in order to, to, for me to feel, feel that level of confidence in, in the actual race. Yeah. Well, I just watched that race again this afternoon. And, and for anyone, I'll link it in the show notes because for anyone that uh, is curious, you, you got to watch this race because you you finish and you just look so shocked and surprised that you just won. <laughs> and then um, you look into the camera and you go, where's my mom? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 It was crazy. I, I uh, yeah. I mean, it feels like a lifetime ago now. It's been so much time since then. But I mean, it's, it's just, the biggest thing is like, like I came out of high school, like as, as, as an athlete that, that I thought I was capable of, of doing exactly that, you know, it's like you, from, from point A, I was like, I want to win NCAAs and I totally think I'm going to, I probably thought it was going to be a lot easier than obviously it was. And the next four to five years were just so different than anything I could have imagined or prepared for. And there was a lot of times throughout that, that time frame where I was like, Hey, you know what? Like, I always thought I had it, but maybe I don't, you know, it was like a lot of doubt of, Hey, maybe, you know, maybe my story doesn't quite go the way I thought it could. And that moment was just like complete validation of, of my belief in myself and you know my capabilities. And it was almost like this kind of circular moment where I was like, Holy shit, like we're finally here. Like this is the runner I always thought I could be. And now I am, that athlete and like, what can we do next? And, um, yeah, in terms of the, where's my mom, uh, my mom was there and like, I, I, yeah, I was like, they've just been unconditionally supportive of me throughout my whole career and similar to them. I mean, they're the ones on the other side that all those phone calls where I'm talking about everything not going well and how frustrated I am. So to be able to enjoy that experience with them watching me, the audience, um, was pretty freaking awesome. And you, you're saying they, but you meet like you, you singled out your mom. Why not dad? Yeah, I don't know. I, dad got no love that day, but he definitely should have. If I had more time, maybe I would have said, where's my mom, dad, uncle Don, and <laughs> everyone else that was there. So, uh, yeah, mom got all the love, which is great. Moms deserve love. So I don't regret it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I made sure to buy dad a beer later that night just to make sure he nice. felt some love as well. <laughs> Well, on that note, let's take a moment to just circle back a little bit. You've mentioned your high school running um, goals and, and collegiate 
let's go back to you were you were born and raised in Kitchener, Ontario. Is that correct? Yeah. Obviously, your family, uh, big fans of yours. Um, do, what was your origin story with running? Was dreaming of winning big races something you did as a, as a young child? And how did that, you know, transition into high school for you? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So I grew up a, a hockey player, a junior Kitchener Ranger. Um, so uh, I'm five foot six. You can't tell an uh, audio or on camera, but uh, I, I clearly didn't get the growth spurt I needed to be a successful <laughs> hockey player. So, you know, I was always I was always good at running. Um, and I found that out just through like an annual track event. And, you know, that happened once a year through middle school, but I never really, I guess, explored it further. It was just something that like was cool that I could brag to my friends about, you know, that I was good at something. And then it wasn't until high school where I have two older sisters named Jamie and Kristen, who, um, they were both on the high school cross country team at St. Mary's high school. And, uh, their coach is Kristenna Sullivan, who's like a, a crazy impressive, athlete herself. She was a multiple time all American at Villanova and one of Canada's top middle distance runners in, in her time. So they couldn't stop talking about how much they loved the cross country team, how much they loved their coach. And naturally when it was my time to enter high school, um, they basically were like, Hey, the first thing you're doing is coming out for the cross country team, uh, which I did. And that was my first time, like really being a part of like an organized structured team and, you know, running every well, more or less every day. I still skipped a lot of runs at that time. Um, and, uh, you know, I was part of a team, you know, I was like about scoring points for the team or, or, you know, getting the top position for the team. And as time went on, you know, I was already like early season, I was definitely showing some promise. And then at the end of my grade nine year, Sully, my high school coach moved me up to like the junior boys team. That's what they called it at my time, the grade 10 um, division, uh, because in the U S they don't have the divisions, but in Canada, as, as you know, we got the the, they called it midget junior and senior, but I don't think they use those terms anymore. Anyways, they moved me up to the grade 10 division and um, I came like third and like OFSA, the, which OFSA was the Olympics uh, for us at the time. And that was like uh, the first time where I was like, wow, hey, this is like, this is pretty cool. And I got a lot of recognition from it. Like the KW record wanted to do an interview and I was like, oh, hey, like this is pretty fun. Like I like being popular and, and you know, doing well for the team. And um then basically Sully encouraged me to join a track club, which was uh, Tri-City Track Club with Pete Grinberg's. Uh, there's been a lot of great um, athletes from the KW area to go through that program. And that's when it was, it kind of turned into like, where can we take this thing? And um, yeah, I was just a high school kid with a big ego and wanted to see, uh, see how good I could get. So you'd stop playing hockey at this point? <laughs> Pretty much. Oh my God. So I, I played junior hockey, like I or the... I was on the junior high school team. So grade nine and 10. And then they had the varsity team. That was my last season because like during my last year as a KEW, like Kitchener Ranger, I was like, like if anyone had to serve two minutes in the box, that was like two minutes of safety for me. I'm like, okay, like I'm like, I'll take the, I'll take the two minute charge. Like put me in there because I was like, it was two minutes away from all the big guys that were inevitably going to like ruin my running career if I was on the ice any longer. So after grade 10, I got the hell out of there. Um, and then I, I kind of phased out all the other sports that I was playing at time. And by the time I was done high school, I think I maybe like swam in the off season, which I was terrible at actually. Um, and then it was just like running all year yeah. long. Okay. So talk to us about then your decision to go to the U.S. Like were you entertaining Canadian universities or was it just Michigan all the way? Yeah, honestly, not as much as I should have and wish I had just under the guidance of Sully and Sully would have definitely encouraged me to explore Canadian schools as well. But I was just so obsessed with the NCAA for whatever reason. Um, at the time, like my favorite runners were Mo Ahmed and Cam Levins among some other Canadian athletes. And they were doing so well in the NCAA. And I just loved it. I loved seeing the, the, the U S college teams compete. Uh, both my sisters ran at the university of Waterloo. So I followed um, CI as it was called at the time and now U sports and I love that as well. But for whatever reason, I just had such a strong attraction to going to the NCAA. So um, I ended up taking a few visits, um, three to University of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Virginia. And once I narrowed it down to those schools, I knew, you know, that I was going to go to one of those three. And I didn't really look into other options. But yeah, it was um, it was a pretty overwhelming experience. Like, I like to think that I had a great time throughout that recruiting experience, but I was so stressed out and overwhelmed about it. And that was with great support. Like people who actually understood the NCAA system. 
So yeah, if I were to do it all again, I wish I kind of just like enjoyed it a bit more. It was really cool to be able to travel North America. I would have visited some more Canadian programs as well, especially considering the success they've had throughout my whole time in college as well. But ultimately all worked out, uh, which is great. It's just like so easy to think like you can screw it all up at that time when that's just obviously not the case. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like it all did work out very well for you. And I'm sure that NCAA win in the 10,000 set you up for post-collegiate very well, right? Because you ended up being uh, sponsored right out of university by the Reebok Boston Track Club. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I feel pretty confident. I mean, the distance running in the professional contract world, like I'm, I'm very privileged to, to have had a contract uh, basically, you know, months out of college to this day. And because it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty steep drop off and it's, it's also can be pretty unforgiving. So I feel very, pretty strongly in saying that like, if I was second at NCAAs, you know, my, the whole story would have been very different. I don't know if I would have had a contract and without a contract and the support at Reebok um, and now it on, like, yeah, my career could have been very different. So fortunately I, I won that day. And, you know, a couple of days later I met with an agent, Dan Lilo, who I work with now. And, um, we actually explored a couple other options, not many, um, but ultimately as I was like racing through the summer in like a old school Michigan kit, it became clear that Reebok was an option. And, you know, with Justin Knight being there and I I got along with the Syracuse guys quite well. And I looked up to coach Fox so much. It was a no brainer once that opportunity came on the table because it was actually kind of like a super secret thing. So it didn't really even get announced that that group existed and that Reebok was investing that heavily in the sport until the late summer. So yeah, once I came on the radar, I was all over it. You know, obviously this opportunity presented itself to you and you couldn't pass it up. It was a great opportunity, but was becoming a professional athlete something that you kind of had in your back of the mind for a long time? Uh, Was it an actual goal of yours or did it just kind of fall into your lap? Oh, totally. Yeah. I I wanted to run pro like since high school. Um, It was like, I had a whole, the whole story in my head. It was like graduate high school, when NCAAs, I don't know, maybe sophomore year, then junior year, senior year, maybe fifth year, get five or six NCAA titles, sign a pro contract, make the Olympics, and then be all good. Probably win the lottery, make millions of dollars. Who knows what else I was going to do? So <laughs> that's like how it went in my head. And I mean, it's crazy that like in a very weird way, a lot of that has actually come true. Again, yeah. just not at all in the path. I would have expected. And um, yeah, it's been a, you know, there's been great moments. It's been a freaking grind as well. But uh, yeah, I think kind of the funniest thing about it is like maybe backtracking five months from when I won NCAAs and like this whole thing became possible to be a post-collegiate pro athlete. That was probably like five months before. It was probably like the closest I was to just like hanging it all up. Like I was in such a negative space with running and was so frustrated that like I I didn't even really want to do it anymore. I was looking up like hockey leagues in the area and gym member like rock climbing memberships. So I was like, I can't wait to just be done with this. And then naturally things just kind of clicked and that momentum came back and then I was just like all in again. What happened that made you in a in a negative headspace about it? Was it injury or you just weren't seeing the results coming through? Yeah, it was basically injuries that yeah led to poor results as well. So um, yeah, I I think what's been like the hardest because, you know, injuries are are natural, but um, like, I feel like what's the hardest or or what hits the hardest is like being injured sucks in general and not being able to run sucks. But um, like the the points of my career I've struggled the most is when you really feel like you're on the verge of a breakthrough and then something shitty really happens. And that, and that happens, you know, to everyone Mm -hmm. in life. But, um, in this particular case, like I was coming off my best fall ever. I was all American and cross country. It was like everything I described about like becoming that athlete. I thought I could always be, it felt like it was like this close. And then it was just like, Oh my, I, I, I got this like random foot injury that to this day, I don't even really know what it was. And, um, those are tough because it's just like, if you don't know what it is, it's really hard to solve. So that happened part one, it sucked, but I kind of got through it. I got a cortisone shot and on the other side raced and like set a huge PB in the 5,000. I was like, oh my God, like who knows? Like I didn't miss anything. Like this is incredible. And then like a week later, I realized that cortisone shot was just a band aid, and the whole thing came back. And that was when I just like crashed and was just like, 
like what like what's the point you know it's like every time it looks like I'm almost there just got knocked down again and that lasted a long time I had to go back to square one and Sully was really conservative with me because of that setback so it's probably six to eight weeks like on in the pool on the underwater treadmill and at that point I was just so fed up mentally with cross training that like every day of practice and like just being in the facility was just like it just I hated it all it, it was just such a, a a negative place to be and eventually I just went home for a little bit spent time with family saw some doctors got it all set up um sorted out and yeah I mean I came back in not a great place but the trajectory back to you know great fitness and en- ended up winning NCAAs is actually like pretty unbelievable in my mind that it all came together as well as it did because um yeah it was uh it was pretty tough not not long before then so when somebody gets injured, here's the physiotherapist to me coming out now. Um, often injury comes after a period of intense training, lack of recovery time, something's out of balance with nutrition or your body's just maxed, right? We often find that loss of mojo and desire to train often goes with some of those training factors. So I'm wondering, do you think that there was any of that going on with you? Like the negative mindset was actually not just because of the injury, but maybe part of a bigger picture that these were both symptoms of? Yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, it's super relatable. This is like, this is one case where like, I don't really know what happened. Like it was like one day I was running fine. And then all of a sudden, like my foot just was killing me. And it was like, got the x-rays, MRIs, like no sign of stress, like a a stress injury. So it just like blew my mind. And in this case, like it was almost like not being able to resolve or having like no end of the, like light at the end of the tunnel. That was, that was really frustrating. However, everything that you just mentioned in other periods, um, especially like when I've had a stress injury, um, which I've had, or not even getting injured, just times where I've over, like, I, I feel like in, in retrospect, I was overtraining. That totally makes sense. And, and I've met with a nutritionist before that's said similar things. It's just like, if you're, you know, too thin, like your weight's low, your mood's off and um, a bit of a different one too, but she also talks about like, just like sex drive as well. If that's like, mm-hmm. if all hormonal. those things are impacted, yeah. yeah, hormonal impact, like it's a pretty, probably a pretty clear sign that you're overtraining. And and that's a pretty tough thing to like ever come to terms with as an elite athlete, because I feel like in high school and any in college as well, it's like, that's what gets you great is like mm-hmm. doing things that no one else is, is willing to do or capable of doing. But then you like hit this intersection where it becomes counterproductive. Right. And that's something I've had to learn the hard way. And nowadays my training routine is like vastly different than what it was just from, you know, trying to incorporate those lessons into what I do now. Yeah. Now you, you mentioned that you've had stress fractures as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Like what, what happened, where were your stress fractures and, you know, how did you manage them? Did you have long periods of, of no training or what happened there? Yeah. Those ones suck. (laughs) Yeah. They're (laughs) like, there's no better, like, there's no way around it. It just like, a, a stress fracture, stress reaction, like it just kind of feels like the moment you get diagnosed with it, it's like it, you know, game over for a bit. It's like reset button, like there's nothing you can do, right? And so I've had two. Um, my first one was like a total wake up call because I never had bone injuries in my life. And that was in my sacrum. Um, for those, you know, I know both you know exactly where that is. Um, but for those that don't know, it's like the lower back. That one, you know, like I basically pushed it to the point where walking was painful. And um, yeah, I just remember getting that news and it's just like, oh yeah, it's somewhere between uh, like maybe like 12 to 16 weeks off of running. So three to four months. And I was just like, like, what, like, what do I, like, what do I do? Can't even comprehend it. Yeah. yeah, It's like, that's (laughs) so much time. And you're like, oh no, more cross training. (laughs) Well, well, this is like, it's it's funny you say that because like, this is, I, this is the, the injury that made me hate cross training because actually I was the opposite where I'm like, oh, I'm going to, you know, be ready to be on the tour de France by the end of this. Like I'm going to cross train so hard. And I did. And I just like cooked myself. Like to this day, I still hate cross training because of that. 13 to 18 or whatever, 16 week 
period. And, um, you know, there, there's some good news, like some positives out of it as well. Like we had other athletes that were injured as like at the same time as me. And, um, I was a team captain at Michigan. So it became like really important for me to be like, okay, I'm setting an example for others in mm-hmm. a really difficult time. Like, what do I think people should see or want to see? So I, I really tried to, I don't know, cultivate this, like, we're important, even though we're injured culture, mm-hmm. because that's where I've heard from other athletes, like they feel very isolated and, you know, they're not training with their teammates and no one's with them on the bike or in the pool. It's very easy to feel lost. So we actually had this, like, we set up this group me group chat, and um, we almost had this like eccentric over the top enthusiasm for our cross training workouts. So we'd like publish like whatever we did that day, like how we felt and like, you know, just pump each other up. And it was great, but I actually do think it, it took a toll. Like it was like every cross training session was too hard. I wasn't like, I, I kind of felt like if I'm not running, I need to absolutely destroy myself cross training or it's not going to, it's not going to be productive. You overcompensated. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um on the other side of it, I was in terrible shape. Like I, I cross trained so hard. Like pro- like I'm confident saying I don't think I could have cross trained any harder. And I got back and I couldn't break five minutes in the mile, which is like way off of any race pace. So it was like it was so demoralizing that like after such a long period where I got my hopes up so high that I was gonna come back and not miss a beat, like I was I still was at ground zero. So yeah, that's kind of how that process went. And luckily I had a whole summer to, to regroup. But um, in terms of like where it came from, I, I remember pretty like distinctively that it was about four months after I made NCAAs for the first time, my junior year of college. And it was a moment where I felt like, like here was the limit I wanted to be at. And I was right here. Uh, this is audio. So just below that. And it was like, okay, what can I do to take it to the next level? And that mindset is what I brought into that fall of training, which I think ultimately ended up giving me a stress fracture. So going through all these injuries, not all these, but I'm sure at the time it felt like a significant part of your life, right? Do you think that having experienced some of these injuries has ultimately made you a smarter athlete in the way that you train? Yeah, definitely. I'm still not a smart athlete, but I'm definitely smarter. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's like I used to get asked on podcasts, like, what's one thing you you would tell the, like, younger runners? And I used to try to, like, help people not make mistakes. And the truth is, like, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to get hurt. But, like, the least you can do is try to take away the lessons from those negative experiences and try not to fall in that same trap again. And that didn't happen with me. I got another stress fracture two years later. So now I think I'm finally on the other side. But like in terms of what those adjustments are, it's like way more, less is more type of approach mm-hmm. to things. You know, my, my mm-hmm. mileage is a lot lower than what it was in college. I, I feel like I acknowledge my limitations a lot more than I did as a younger athlete. Uh, as, as a younger athlete, I maybe thought I didn't have any limitations at all, which I think becomes problematic at some point and then my diet's quite a bit different not drastically like the the times where I was hurt I'm almost certain that I was like under fueling so nowadays I just it's very important for me to just never make that mistake so even when you know you're getting later in the season and you get all worried about whatever what you're putting in your body how much you're putting in your body like I really try to just avoid that mindset entirely and have a well-balanced diet, understand that like, you know, food is fuel, not weight. Anytime I've really tried to focus on my diet, it's typically gone a lot worse than benefit me in any sort of way. So I really try to just like not make it a big part of my training routine and just eat what I enjoy. Yeah. I think that's Mm -hmm. a really important thing to highlight and to pause on here is that eating enough, eating like food as fuel, like this is something that has been started to be talked about a lot more, thankfully, but often it's in the context of women, right? Like, yeah, because the red S, I think it, relative energy deficiency in sport, it used to be the female athlete triad. That's what it was called. And so now it's been updated to red S because it affects men too. So I appreciate you talking about this and talking about how your experience with it, how it showed up for you and, and maybe how you're sort of taking those lessons forward with you and, and not 
concerning yourself with it so much as instead really looking at like, am I getting enough as opposed to like, how little can I have, right? Totally. And um, it's almost like deja vu because I remember like in my junior year, whenever I got that bad injury, the first one, the sacrum, like I remember I'm talking on the phone with my mom, talking about being tired all the time, all the, you know, basically like standard reds, red S um, right. symptoms. And like, she was exactly like that. Hey, like I've been reading, there's this, she's a nurse practitioner, or just retired nurse practitioner. She was like, I've been reading a lot about this reds. It, used, it came from the female athlete triad, which I think you're totally bang on as to why people focus you know, are bringing up a lot more female athletes. And I just brush it off like crazy. I'm like, no, no, no. Like there's like, I'm not overtraining. Like I'm not that good. Like if I'm overtraining right now that I'm screwed because like, I'm not good enough yet. Like in my mind, I still had that linear mindset that like mm -hmm. training equals progress. And there really is no overtraining. It's just the more you train, the better you get when, yeah, in hindsight, like the best thing would have, would have been to hang up the phone and be like, Hey, I need to take a pretty serious step back now. A, I'll probably start running better, and B, I'm going to avoid a massive injury that I end up taking 14 weeks off for. So, yeah, and thankfully other men are speaking up about it. It's not something I've actually talked about a ton, but I'm more than comfortable doing so because I, I think it is um, – I, I would say there's probably a very high percentage of male and female distance runners that have experienced it at least at some point in their career because it's, it's, it's pretty hard not to. But I, then again, like – the more people talk about it, hopefully others don't have to, because my experience went great. Like in terms of the final outcome, like it was a terrible injury, but I was on the other side, I got back to form and it all worked out, but there's many athletes that, that, you know, ends their career. Career forever. ending. Yeah. 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 Or, Sacral pelvic stress fractures. They're considered high risk stress fractures. Like this is not a little thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I keep what's stuck in my mind. If we can just go back for a second, you were talking about your, your cross training, your cycling and, and coming out of that performing worse, not worse, but not as well as you thought you would um, running afterwards. And I think, I think it's Coop that says, the body doesn't know miles it knows stress right and that's kind of where the training peaks total stress tour kind of came from and and you were still physiologically exhausted it sounds like <laughs> from all of that overtraining that was theoretically you know stress fractures we we joke about this in physio too the whole reason for a stress fracture is the stress and if you don't take the stress away you're not going to heal from it and it's not just a physical mechanical stress it's the physiological stress as well because that's what nourishes the bones to to recover so i didn't mean this to turn into a bit of a textbook lesson but um it's just interesting to me that the mindset that took you into the stress fracture didn't go away just because you had it you still cross-trained with that same mindset and then found that your body was still exhibiting signs of potentially overtraining even yeah. after all that time off it's quite ironic to me yeah I'm sure my body's just like dude like you've got to be kidding me like, yeah exactly <laughs> like how else can we show this and um I, honestly like truthfully and this is sad to say but I actually think it's a pretty I, I bet it's a, a hugely common problem in the collegiate athlete like athletics for sure mm -hmm. like I think coaches have a tendency where it's like oh if you can't run like you got to get your fitness in somewhere and like nowadays, like if I got the same injury again, who knows what I would do? Cause you know, when something like that happens, you never know how exactly you're going to respond. But what I would hope I would do is take two weeks just off to start, like just completely shut down. And like, I, I think it's problematic that like you almost punish yourself for being injured. It's like, oh, well now I need to go harder in another arena, which in reality, in my own experience, I didn't think actually provided me that much physiological value anyways like I would have been better off just taking a super moderate approach stay active because you know I want my blood flowing and stay you know physically fit if I can but like going over the top and thinking that like all of that excess training would just like naturally transition to my running just didn't happen and mm -hmm. I know other athletes that feel differently they feel like cross training works for them um but the way I did it it didn't. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I, at least like, like I, I had another injury a few months ago that was different, like not stress induced. And I cross trained for that. And I, I tried to follow like a running approach. It's like, okay, like I'm tired today and I don't want to work out. It's probably a good sign that like I shouldn't. And I would mm -hmm. spend, you know, maybe 20, 30 minutes on the bike. And once I got mentally exhausted, I would go home. And there was points in my career that I was like 30 minutes on the bike. Like that's not even the same length as a run. 
but it's like I'm not a cyclist. Like it's not like I thought that like I just automatically could bike for two hours, but it's like if you have no experience in another form of physical activity, you can't expect to just pick up like where mm-hmm. someone with mm-hmm. years of training would leave yeah. off, you know? Exactly. So yeah. I think about this stuff quite a bit, as you can see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank goodness you learned these lessons a few years ago. You're still only 27 years old. And as of the last year, almost starting with um, the Falmouth Road Race in 2021, last August, you have just absolutely been on a complete tear on the roads. Like, We'll go through these one by one uh, if <laughs> if time allows. But what do you think it is that makes you so good on the roads and the kind of 10K half marathon distances in particular? Yeah, I don't totally know, to be honest. Like there definitely seems to be a natural fit there. Like even my first debut on the road, uh, which was a second place finish at a major road race, like it was just something that I was like, wow, that went a lot better than I thought it would. And then I went and found it two weeks later in 2018. And that was like the first time I was like, wow, that was like, like that just went great. Like things just felt good throughout the whole process. And like, I have some theories as to why I think like some things benefit me on the roads. Like, you know, I've always been a strength guy. The longer distance definitely doesn't hurt me at all. Like a seven mile race, I think to me, anything over 10K, but under a half marathon is a great fit because, you know, half marathon, you start to have to tweak your training. I think like how stubborn I am about being a track athlete does actually end up benefiting me on the roads. Like when I set PBs in the 1500, the mile and the 5k, all of a sudden with like kind of my natural strength, like I feel confident at kind of what we were talking about earlier with that kick in the last few Ks of a road race. And then the one thing that's very interesting about road racing is the calendar year is just a total disaster. Like it's so chaotic. Like it's just, I'm coming off of a 1500 racing someone who's like building up for a marathon. It's not like a very, it's not like a typical seasonality where it's like you got your U S champs, or your Canadian champs worlds, everyone takes a reset and then everyone's kind of on the same page. It's just like, everyone's in such a different place. So you can definitely capitalize on those opportunities. So it's just like, I feel like you have to go into races very open-minded and like confident that you don't really know where somebody's at. And sometimes that flips on you and they absolutely kick your ass, someone who you were thinking you're going to beat. But oftentimes if you can like kind of just like leave it open-ended and just not know what to expect, it doesn't, I, I feel like you can like avoid putting any sort of like limitations on yourself. So yeah, those are a couple things, but overall I'm not going to look too far into it. I'm probably just going to keep on doing it. And I think the writing's on the wall that it's a transition that I, I should really consider making sooner than later. And that's probably what I'm going to end up doing. Yeah, exactly. So just to kind of go through these a little bit one by one, we were talking about Falmouth, the Falmouth Road Race. You won that last August. You were the first Canadian to win that race in 46 years. Wow. like That's pretty cool. Quite an accomplishment. And for those who don't know about Falmouth, like there's a long history to this race. Can you kind of summarize about the history of the race and why it's such a big deal to win that one? Yeah, it's, um, I'll really have to summarize because there's a lot to talk about with it. But um yeah, basically, it's just uh, there, there's a guy named Tommy Leonard who who created the race. He, he passed away a couple years ago. I met him for the first time about a month before he passed, which was amazing. I get, get to meet him face to face. And yeah, he's he's remembered and uh, highly just valued in the New England area to the distance running community. But um, it's pretty funny, like the way he created the races, it actually went from one bar to another bar. And um, it started to like pick up some momentum in like the local community and then Tommy reached out to, it was either Bill Rogers or Frank Shorter to try to get one of them to come, who was yeah. at the time, one of the best distance runners in the world. Um, and obviously in the US and he got both of them to come and they duked it out. And all of a sudden it became, you know, mm-hmm. a, a destination race for elite. So um, a ton of just historic runners that um, you really have to be a, a, a running nerd to to know all of them. They've gone through, and this is all stuff I didn't even know the first time I went and ran it. But once you get over there, you learn pretty quick about all the successful athletes that have gone through there. So it's pretty awesome, and they always assemble a great field every single year. And it's actually where I met my fiance now. So um, yeah, it's it's a pretty funny story. Is she a runner? Tell us. The story. No, she's not. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So. Basically, the road race, they have a system where for their housing, they have local families, house runners, which is really cool because you get to meet people there. And 
I don't know if anyone's ever been to Cape Cod, but you have, it's, it's beautiful. So it's a beautiful beach town. So great trip to, to go on. So anyways, uh, I got there and I was the last one standing, like no one came and picked me up. Like my host family never arrived. So I was like sitting there, like I'm, I'm not sponsored this time. So I'm in all my Michigan gear and Scott, who he was the president of the road race, then wasn't. And now he is again, that's Hannah's dad. He saw me and heard that like this Michigan guy didn't have a place to stay. And he's like, what the heck? Like, he can come stay with us. My daughter golfs at Michigan. So Hannah was a golfer at Michigan herself. So her and I didn't know each other, but I met her just by staying with her family. And then we came back to school and started dating. And then um, she moved to Virginia with me uh, about two years ago. And now we moved back to Ann Arbor together and recently got engaged in May. So yeah, it's crazy. So he can't complain about the man that his daughter is marrying because he brought you home and yeah. he's, he's responsible for it all. Yeah, we, uh, we have a lot to talk about him and I. So uh, yeah, exactly. He, uh, it's his fault. So, but um, yeah, fortunately, like he's a big running nerd. So him and I get along super well and um, it's, it's awesome. So like Falmouth obviously is a huge part of my career now because I've got two wins there. It's some of my biggest wins, you know, to date for my career, but now also like it's where my fiance's family is. So I literally was just on the Cape in Falmouth for two weeks running the course because we go there all the time. It's like a second home now. So I definitely have like a bit of an advantage going into those races, knowing the community super well, knowing the course super well, and just kind of that extra adrenaline, you know, trying to, trying to impress the future father-in-law, you know? <laughs> so you always stay there now. You always have a place to stay. Always stay there. So uh, I think it's great. Hopefully they do too. Um, but uh, yeah, it's an amazing place. Is that be. where the wedding's taking place? It's actually, we're actually getting married in Charlottesville, Virginia, where we were living before I moved back to um, okay. Michigan here. So another beautiful area. Uh, yeah. We're going to get wa- married at a, a cidery there. So it's, it's going to be pretty oh. nice. Lovely. Awesome. I would love to say this is all my idea, but I've done a lot more listening than uh, talking in the (laughs) wedding planning phase. Probably a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So you came off Falmouth uh, last year and then turned right around in October and won the Canadian 10K championships in Toronto, followed very closely by uh, winning the Manchester road race in, in November. And that one's always around the American Thanksgiving, isn't it? Yeah, it's on American Thanksgiving Day. So uh, okay, definitely yeah. another one of those like historic ones. So that, that was a pretty cool win to get as well. Yeah, tell us about that one. What was that day like? It was awesome. I mean, um, you know, when you bring up uh, the the fall Canadian 10K champ as well, like I, I actually ended my season after Falmouth because it was Olympic year. It was just a very emotional season. So after Falmouth winning on a high note, I was like, I'm shutting things down, going to the beach, hanging out, having some wine, and it was great. So I got asked to go to Toronto to run the 10K champs, which obviously is like a great opportunity to have. But I was like, I really don't know where I'm going to be at at that time coming back from a break. And yeah, so fortunately, things came back really quick. I was fit for that. Um, Won that, which was awesome. And Toronto was really sweet. And then Manchester, um, yeah, similar to Falmouth. It's just a road race that was around and I guess became a thing like really at a, a really historic time in U.S. distance running. So a lot of great athletes have gone through there as well. And that was, I honestly think, one of my best races I've ever run in my life. I um, took the lead with about, you know, 2K to go and ran away with it, which was awesome. And yeah, there's not a whole lot to say about it. It was just a great day, uh, another big win. And those races come with a good payday too, which was always nice. nice. Um, mm-hmm. And then I went to Falmouth with Hannah's family and had American Thanksgiving there and some turkey. So it was a great day. Amazing. Perfect. Wow. Yeah. And that Manchester, it's an odd distance race, isn't it? It's like seven point something K yeah. like 7.6 K or something. Yeah. I, I actually don't even know. I know like it's a U.S. event. So I think it's like 4.37 miles seven, or something. Weird. Mile. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's pretty gnarly. There's like a hill that's just like, they have this King of the Hill that there's like a thousand dollar bonus. If you're the first one to the top of it. And it's gnarly. It's like something that that was my second time racing there and going there once before makes a huge difference because it's a very unique course. And then you just bomb down the other side. It's pretty sweet. Highly recommend. Right. Okay. And then in early, early this year, was it end of, end of 21, early 2022 is when you signed your contract with on. Yeah, exactly. You want to tell us about that? And you sort of opened up with this amazing uh, half marathon in Houston, right? Thank you. Yeah. Um, it was, I mean, on was great. It's, it's pretty funny. Like 
especially just as we're describing this right now and my, my road racing career, because I, I knew I was going to be looking for a bit of a different situation. I had a great time with Reebok and in Charlottesville, but I was just looking to get an independent contract, something that allowed me to move to a different area, have a bit more autonomy, fit running into my life into a way that I, I, I wanted a bit more control of. So yeah, I, uh, I made it very clear to my agent who negotiates those deals on my behalf that I wanted an independent contract, which it's pretty hard to come by. Like there's kind of a model right now where companies are forming groups and people are signing contracts and going to groups. So anyways, I, I told them that on would be a great option if they were open to it. And fortunately they were looking to get more exposure in Canada and on the roads. And we're like, what a great fit. So uh, it was just like great timing. And, and again, like huge privilege, like contracts, like I, I'm proud of everything I've done in my career, but it's like, you're never secured a contract. And there's a lot of athletes that accomplish some amazing things that um, like, it's just, it's not a fun thing to go through. And fortunately for me, like we were just in the right place at the right time with a company that was looking for exactly what I had to deliver. So super lucky. And it's been an amazing experience and um, on's growing a lot in Canada now, which is cool. I'd love to take credit for it, but I don't think that's why it is. Um, but they've <laughs> been sure a great it's company. part of it. And hopefully. So uh, <laughs> yeah, if I'm doing my job, but yeah, they've been great. Uh, I, I love the brand and they're investing a lot in the sport right now. So it's been cool to be a part of. And it sounds like the shoes are working for you. The shoes are such a big part of the sport now, right? Both on the track and, and on the road. So you're loving their shoes? Yeah, it's it's actually pretty funny. I'm sure I'll be, I'm fine to say this, but um, On is just releasing a lot of like the super tech, which as you both know, like shoes is such a big part of, this, uh, of the, the scene right now. So um, they just released a, a newer model and they were only available in like size nine for about a, like a month leg period. But I had a couple races on the schedule and I've got little tiny size eight shoes. So in Ottawa, I was actually racing in these size nine shoes. So if you look at like the video or like any pictures, like my foot, like there's like a good like two and a half inch gap. And I wouldn't have done it if like it was problematic, but I trained in them. I was like, oh, it's totally fine. So I now have my size eights. Uh, I made that decision willingly, but it's kind of just like a, a very funny anecdote. <laughs> so you can win a 10K road race in shoes that are not your size. <laughs> you should like, look, go back and look. Like if you notice, it looks like they look like clown shoes. Like they're big on me, but it worked out fine. Oh my goodness, nice. I would trip. Oh, that yeah. is so funny. <laughs> so I, I wrote those in Boston too, actually. Or anyways, uh, yeah. So yeah, it's pretty funny. The, the right size? The eight? No, those are the size nines too in Boston as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're talking about your recent 10K record, Canadian record. Yeah, yeah, those ones in the size nines. Yeah, so in case anyone's getting confused, you recently set the new Canadian 10K record at the BAA 10K just like a couple weeks ago, right? Placing fifth in uh, 2811 to take the pre uh, the previous record that was set by. Paul McCloy in 1987, like this record is 35 years old, like way older than you are. Um, what did that mean to you? Because now you're just destroying everything on the roads, right? Like you, you know, you're the Canadian 10K champion, but now you have a brand new shiny Canadian record on the books. So walk us through the finish line feels of that one. Yeah, it was, um, it was hard and uh, it was awesome. I mean, I ran the 10K champs in Toronto and then in Ottawa as well. And both those races I thought went great. And I was running 2840, very well, like aware of the record. Like ideally I wanted to get that record in Ottawa. And every time I ran a 10 K, I was just like, shit, like that's pretty fast. You know, 2011 is like, or sorry, 28, uh, it was 2017. I was like, that's, uh, that's moving pretty good. So I knew I was really only going to get one more really good shot because you know, you need, you need to find a 10 K competitive field, a record eligible course that's not too hard unless you're just in like absolutely phenomenal shape but a lot of things have to go right in order for those records to go down so yeah i knew like i went into boston like very much with like that being the intention and you know anytime you accomplish a goal like that that's set pretty high you, there's a lot of uncertainty around it it just feels amazing so i'm very happy and i want to go try to get some uh, some other ones so what are your goals uh now what are you working towards uh in the next year or two yeah uh great question so basically one thing we didn't mention i'm just going to touch on briefly is that i i broke my toe in late december which was another big hiccup sucked but it was fine we got over it however like that was right when i was gonna like transition to ann arbor 
and join a new training group, new sponsorship. So it was like so many changes during a time where I wasn't even like at my best. So I really didn't know what the year was going to look like. And it's a world championship year on the track. So I went in the season pretty open-minded and I took like one swing at making that world team and it didn't happen on the track, which is always a bummer. But like what's nice is it opens up a lot of opportunities for the rest of the, of, of the year. So uh, world is next weekend and I won't be there. Unfortunately, a lot of great Canadians will be, which is going to be awesome to see. But uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to run the Falmouth road race again. Like, Based on what I've told you guys, I'm sure you can understand. Like it's a no-brainer. So, um, and coming back as returning champion, I, I certainly want to win that. I, I'm running a road mile a couple weeks before that. That's going to be on July 23rd. That's definitely like a, it's a Michigan event. It's only three hours from us, and um, our coach is pretty well connected to that event. So it's going to be like a very fun competitive event, different uh, distance. So be awesome to try to break four on the roads there. So yeah, so we got Falmouth, the road mile. The only thing in between that I might do is Beach to Beacon, another big road race in um, Portland, Maine. After that, I'm going to have to decide whether it's time to shut things down or go crazy, which I'm leaning towards going crazy. Um, And what that would entail is, yeah, (laughs) we'll see what happens. So again, it's all based on a lot of things we talked about. If, you know, physically I'm feeling good, mentally I'm still feeling good. It doesn't disrupt any long-term plans. Um, if things go great after Falmouth, I'd like to try to take a shot at the Canadian 5K record in Moncton, New Brunswick at the Canadian 5K champs, and then possibly squeeze in another half marathon and try to take a shot at that Canadian record as well. Um, and the only one that I think would be feasible for that without doing more research is going to be in Valencia, Spain. So we'll see. That takes me all the way through late October, and it's a long time away. So that's the loose plan. And Long term, I'm I'm planning on making a marathon debut. I was gonna ask. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so that's I don't know it's uh it's gonna be cool. Like I, I paced the marathon project a couple of years ago, and and I run the BAA 5K, which is on Boston Marathon weekend. And it's like being a part of a marathon event, even though I wasn't racing the marathon. It's just like it's such a cool atmosphere, and um, I've always been excited about making the transition and I'm not there yet. And I'm not certain that I'm going to be this spring, but that's kind of like the rough outline we're, we're setting ourselves up for. So yeah, we're going to go to the drawing board and see like, based on what I described this fall, if it makes sense to do all that and make a debut in the spring where that's going to be, but we're not married to that idea. If it needs to be later in the right. summer or the fall, um, we'll do that. But ultimately I want to be on the Paris 2024 Olympic team. Uh, in the marathon. And if I want to be able to do that, I need to get my shit together. So, and make a marathon debut. So that, I, I hope to make one in the spring. Well, if, if there's anything to take away from this conversation, you've got the speed, right? You're fast in the mile, you're fast in the 1500. You seem to get better as the distance gets longer. So you've got a lot of um, promise, it sounds like in the marathon. So we'll wish you uh a lot of luck with the marathon and uh, we'd be following closely along to see how it goes for you. Yeah, I appreciate it. So we'll see how it goes. Um, I'm, uh, I'm excited yeah. about, that, about that transition whenever it happens. Excellent. Well, this has been a really fascinating conversation with you, Ben. Um, we like to end each podcast with a couple rapid fire questions that are a little fun. Are you ready for our rapid fire questions? Let's do it. Okay. So the first one is, what is your favorite running mantra? Do you have one? I would say the one that we talked about earlier is don't take the lead until you know you're going to win. And then my high school coach also had a quote that I love and have grown to appreciate with age. And it's um, about running. It's that it means everything and it means nothing. Ah. So very vague, ambiguous, and may not make sense, but I can relate to it quite a bit. <laughs> I think it'll yeah. make sense to all the runners, right? Like we can take ourselves so seriously and it's like, oh my gosh, it's just running. Like exactly. it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. But just when you think that, then you're like, oh no, maybe it's everything, but it's also right. nothing. So I, I like that. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. Do you have a favorite place to run? That's how we usually ask it. Or in your case, do you have a favorite track to run on? Um... I mean, I, the track here in Ann Arbor, it's, you can't beat it. It's very field. Uh, it's, it's not the track they use now. They built a beautiful facility in my last year of college. 
But um, yeah, it's got a ton of history. It's it's awesome. Like now it, it they've taken down a lot of the stands and everything, so it's just like a track lined up against this like beautiful uh, historic building. But it's where Jesse Owens actually set uh, three world records within an hour. Although he's an Ohio State guy, it's pretty freaking awesome. Jesse Owens is amazing, and um, it used to be the like Michigan uh, football field, uh, the infield, mm. like way way back when. So mm. that place is great. And then I love running back in Kitchener, Ontario. Super underrated place to train. Uh, a lot of trails, Bethville Park uh, is where I did a lot of training growing up. So any Kitchener listen, listeners, shout out. It's a, it's a beautiful place to run. A lot, a lot of people really um, mention the places that they grew up running as their favorite place to run. There's just something grounding about, about putting your feet on the earth uh, when you're young in those places. I don't know if people can relate to this or not or if I'm just a weirdo, but I feel like when I go back home, it's almost like the map of what I'm used to, the routes have all just like shrunk. It's like everything that I thought was like so far away and like, yes. you know, these like yeah. runs that really like, I'm like thinking it's gonna take me 20 minutes to get somewhere and it takes me like eight minutes. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I thought like my my whole perception is just like thrown off going back now. <laughs> or you've just gotten so fast. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess that maybe that's the case, but um, I don't run too fast on my recovery days, but who knows? My high school <laughs> self would have been kicking my butt on those easy days days um yeah. compared to my my how I do them now <laughs> yeah okay so our next one is do you have a bucket list race or event um I mean the two that like I really want to run especially as we're talking about like marathon debut is uh Toronto um waterfront and the Boston Marathon um I oh, think yeah. those are massive events that are amazing historic and also in such close proximity to areas that are so important to me. So I think they, they would be mm-hmm. like, I think that experience would be sick at, at both. I, I hope to run both. Um, mm-hmm. But um, yeah, hopefully like I'll make a debut at, at one of them as well, depending on how things yeah. line up, but we'll see. I'm surprised you didn't say the Olympics. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's, yeah, that goes without saying I, I, holy <laughs> shit after 2021, like I freaking need to make 2024 and just like check that box. So uh yeah, uh, that is a hundred percent bucket list. Paris Olympics. I know Hannah wants to go on a serious shopping spree um, oh, yeah. in Paris. So, yeah, I'm trying to make that team for the both of us. Oh yeah, and you said you want to make it for the marathon, not the track. Yeah, that's that's the plan. I mean, um, okay. you know, I took that swing in 2020, and like my pro or 2021. Um, my problem is that like I think I can do it on the track, and that's that's provided me so much, so many positive things and negative things. It's like, it's got made me a lot better of a track athlete, which I think has made me a better road athlete, but it's also keeps me coming back to the track when it's like time to move on. It's like, I just can't break up with the track. Um, So although I would love to go for the, you know, 10 K or the 5 K in 2024, like, I just think my, my potential is higher in the marathon and especially for how like North Americans fare at the Olympics, but we, yeah. who knows, maybe I'll go for the 1500 no. things change. So we'll Never see what know. happens. Just keep your hand in all of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Stay we'll in touch with all of them. Yeah. Okay. Do you have a favorite running book or movie? It's been so long since I've read a book. I'm not sure I can even read books anymore. Um, <laughs> I did like, I, I have read, um, once a runner, I've read the first half of once a runner, like three or four times. And I just don't have the attention span to finish the whole thing. Although I love the first half. And um, growing up, my my gym teacher, Jeff Roth, um, he, uh, Mr. Roth, he was a huge Prefontaine fan. And when he found out his distance runner, he pushed like Prefontaine movies on me like crazy. Roth's worst quality is that he thinks Prefontaine is better than Without Limits, which it's definitely not. So my favorite <laughs> movie is Without Limits. Yeah, I watched that thing, like that movie before, like all my high school races. It was awesome. Yeah. Okay. Final question. What is your favorite post-run indulgence? Oh, pizza, uh, hands down. So pizza and a beer. So I would say post-run, if I could find like a place to get a slice and a beer, that's like makes me the happiest guy ever. And then pre-run, like pre-race, my actual go-to pre-race meal, which surprised a lot of people, is chicken parm and a glass of red wine. It's like takes the edge off and gets me ready for the next day. So that's what okay. I'll be having before huh. all of my next biggest races. 
I am going to try wine before my next run. <laughs> you got to be careful. Amazing advice. <laughs> it was actually funny because I was in Boston and they, they, it, they had like, uh, they gave us dinner that night and there was red wine. I was like, oh, perfect. I can get my chicken parm and red wine paid for it. Like amazing. Like they had it there on site. So I, I, I have my red wine and um, I like had the bottle by me and one of the, one of the like BAA stat, like organizers, they're like, Hey, if you want, you can take the bottle with you. I'm like, that is a terrible idea. I mean, yeah. one glass of red wine get, takes the edge off, gets me sleepy. I'm going to wake up at 4 a.m. before this race. No problem. But um, if I have that bottle, bottle, then I might not wake up until yeah, the race yeah. is over. So we don't need that. <laughs> Oh, well, Ben, this has been just such a fun conversation. We, I've enjoyed every minute of it. If people are also loving it and want to follow along with whatever you're up to, is there a place we can point them to on the socials? Totally. Yeah, I'm definitely most active on Instagram, uh, which my account is at Ben underscore Flanagan. So yeah, I try to, you know, everyone keep everyone up to date in terms of what I'm doing there. And I try to respond to all the messages I get as well. Um, as you probably know, Caroline, sometimes I'm a little slow to respond. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, if anyone ever wants to reach out about anything, you know, always feel free to, to contact me there. Awesome. Well, we will put that in, in the show notes and it's just been an absolute blast talking to you. Thank you for making the time for us and we will be excited to cheer for you and everything you've got coming up. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on here and thanks for anyone that's listening.